uh, shipments from China are less than 10% on time right now. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. I always feel weird speaking in a radio voice. I'm doing this totally for you, you know, Elder Baldy, Jeff. What do you mean? This long long dj history from before finance and before finance even existed yes, back when bef- radios can when radios consisted of two people tapping on rocks this was before the desert was dusty folks this is you right. know the the he didn't have to discover that dinosaurs had feathers uh he was I the start- one that plucked them i started in radio in 1965 wow so you've said That's, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday a few times. No, we didn't. Never no, said Sunday, no, Sunday, Sunday. No. no, we didn't do that. That was that would be considered monster the, truck gosh, rally. No, we did not do monster no, truck rally. This is before radio became different. It was the high class yeah. communication. Yeah. AM radio was the high tech way to communicate with people, and yeah. it was the practically everybody in town listening listened to the evening news in Idabel, Oklahoma. On KBEL, Ida Bell, Oklahoma, 1240 on your radio dial. Radio still had dials. What are those? That's like the soap, right? No, it's a no. circular thing. It's, it's a, like an analog clock. Yeah. Um, my, I, I have uh, a whole series of people in younger generations, and they don't know what a CD or a DVD is. They don't know what a cassette is. I mean, it's just... So, yeah, we're, when, when I started radio with you, it was at the end of the 20th century. But we still had eight track players that um, that you had to flip to play the ads. It was pretty amazing. That, and that was high tech to me because oh, yeah. I read the ads when I was a radio announcer back in the sixties. So, so all of that uh, extra deep voice and exciting episode uh, to me it really brings back. Um, the Muppet Show and Pigs in Space, but that was a spoof off of something that happened much earlier. See, all I know about it is the satire. So, it's Muppets in Space. Muppets mainly. in Space. Yeah, you know, pigs. You in realize space. you realize you date yourself when you say Muppets in Space because I have a trainer that's in the generation after yours. It gives me great pain twice a um, a week, and I talked to her about the Muppet movie, and she just looked blank. Yes. And she's a well-educated person, and I realized that it has I'm not, not to do with education. It's time. <laughs> yeah. So we're we are all eldering, all of us. Uh, hopefully, 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 hopefully. Yeah. Other than that, other than that, you die. Um, but we've got to jump into some disclosures. We've got one first one. We're well, even though if this is the Saturday, April sixteenth. If you heard about the tornado through Salado, Texas. Um, we did not experience the t- tornado directly, but the effects of the tornado were definitely felt. And so everybody's fine and that we know and are aware of. There were 23 injuries. Everybody out there in the village seemed to be okay. No deaths, which is pretty amazing because there was some big devastation. We One had person a person in critical condition, though. Yes. 
We had hailstones, softball, grapefruit-sized hailstones, which just ruin your day if you're taking a stroll. That's that's. Don't take a stroll in a golf ball and above-sized hailstorm. And if it starts talking softball, you need to wear some like football pads or something. Maybe more. And a helmet. Maybe more. <laughs> Anyway, um, so that's the first disclosure. Next is that uh, this is not only a radio program. The, the Personal Wealth Coach is also the name of an investment advisory firm registered with the SEC. It is? Uh, it is. Um, wow. We're not offering business on the air, for sure. We're talking about generalities and education. The reason is because as fiduciaries, we're not allowed to give advice in a non-private setting. Uh, we're also we also need to know our clients uh, thoroughly before we give them advice, and that is not easy to accomplish in a podcast or a radio program. It's just I don't know. I I suppose we only have a few listeners, so I mean we could just get to know all of them and have this communication going back. No, we we actually do have quite a good number of listeners. Well, I can say that we don't pay for this radio program, nor are we paid to do this radio program. Uh, KTEM, we do advertise on KTEM for the radio program. And so does KTEM advertise on KTEM for the radio program. Uh, we have a little conflict of interest in that we have gotten a few clients over the years. Uh, from, from the radio program. Right. From the radio program. Our primary benefit for us to do the radio program, other than the fact that we are weird, uh, spending hours each week preparing for it and then uh, doing the radio program on Saturday morning instead of doing something else, is we enjoy doing it. And we also have, by report, at least three clients that listen to it. Yes. And hopefully we're educating people. I mean, we do get a lot of emails from people thanking us for doing it. So we appreciate that. Well, that's, that is our main objective here, is to get financial education out there as well as we can two hours a week. But uh, let's see. The next thing is that you want to do the DEEM. Do the deem. This is, this is, as Jake said, an educational radio program. We don't give investment advice. And the educational information we provide on this program, see how my words are getting longer? Yes. Um, educational information we provide. Normally, I would say the stuff we say. But no, you're speaking a, faster and using bigger words. So this is definitely yeah. a disclosure. So go ahead. Monster, monster, monster. No, um, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Monster Sunday, truck. Sunday, 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 Sunday. Right. Uh, the information we provide on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. You missed using the word deem. You said believe. I said believe. Oh, I oh, should have said deem. We're working hard on bringing okay. this word back into normal vocabulary of the English language, and you're skipping it. The poor word. Sk Take believe and translate it into deem. The information we provide on this radio program has come from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. I deem that to statement to be good. That's a, there we go. Thank you. Now, we've used deem probably more than you have heard the rest of the week combined. And right. We have, unless uh, you're a lawyer. Unless uh, you're a lawyer. And then you probably deem that we have not used deem enough. <laughs> <laughs> the deemed lawyers uh lies deemed lies and statistics yes um 
We are now on to what happened this week in the market. Okay. The S&P 500 stock index is what we use to measure what we, it's, it's not the market, but it's what we use to indicate what's going on in the market. And it didn't do so well than this last week. Um, Bank stocks led the decline, and they kind of lead the way, and people were concerned, and people got worried. So the worry warts won, the the bears won for the week. The S&P 500 closed at 4392.59. And remember, some time ago, I said 4400 is kind of a benchmark, and we're looking at 4500, and we didn't get there. It was down 2.39% for the week, down 7.84% so far this year, just over a quarter. And the one-year return of the Standard Poor's 500 stock index was only 5.33%. These are all relatively low or negative numbers compared with what we've seen over the last couple of years. Uh, We follow carefully the mid-cap value side asset class in the market, which in the CRSP mid-cap value index, which is the other one we follow, dropped 0.15% to 2580.25%. Down 0.65% this year, but up a respectable 7.95% last year from last year at this time. And at some point, we ought to talk about asset classes and, and why we think value is more important than growth and all that kind of stuff. Very we'll classy, classy conversation. Yeah, academic stuff. The 10-year U.S. Treasury note, which is another thing we follow carefully, uh, it continued its climb, which it's been doing for some time now, all this year. Actually, started last year in the middle of the year. It's at 2.828%. Now, to put a little uh, perspective on this, in 2020, middle of the year 2020, the 10-year U.S. Treasury note yield was 0.51%. It's now at 2.828%, nearly it's closing in on 3%, which, by the way, is pretty close to neutral. Um, it was up for the week. It's now within the range, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note, which is an indication of how well the economy is doing, by the way. Higher yield indicates the economy is doing better, um, is now in the range it was in before the pandemic. So as far as interest rates, yields on Treasury securities, we have recovered. Um, now, the fact that it went up four point, roughly 4.3% this week is important um, why do we follow that? And this is a little educational thing. The yield curve is now positive across its entire stretch. So there's a little blip in there where it's not positive, right. but, the, but it's mainly positive. 30, right. Yeah. Well, no, between maybe I didn't look at 20 and 30 too much, but I noticed that there, I think the five and seven or something are a little bit inverted, tiny bit, but the, um, the, the 2.92 yield on the 30 year bond is higher. And the shorter-term treasuries are now all lower yielding than the 10-year treasury. Now, a healthy yield curve is one where longer-term treasury securities have higher yields. And shorter-term treasuries, ones that are going to mature shorter, have lower yields. That is an indication of a growing economy. And we had a little inversion in there for a few weeks. Uh, It's it's pretty much disappeared. It's kind of like watching a snake eat a mouse. You see that mouse lump come in and then it slowly disappears. That's sort of what's happened to the inversion and the yield curve. It just kind of melded away to the sides. There's a little blip between seven and 10 years and a little blip between 20 and 30 years, but it's nothing that nothing that's indicative of, of a recession by any, 
any measurement in the past. So that's good. The price of West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, which we follow rather than Brent because it affects our prices here locally, it also went upward following as it tends over the long term to follow the yield on the treasury. The, the, the busier the economy, the higher the price of oil gets. It's now at $106.48 per barrel. The reason it went up, and it's always nice to see what the reasons are, is that the European Union appears to be getting serious about blocking, uh, stopping buying Russian oil. And so what that hap- what happens if they do that is it produces a greater demand for oil in everywhere but Russia. And since we're not in Russia, it produces a greater demand for oil from the United States, which means the price goes up. And the laws of supply and demand have not been repealed, contrary to popular belief. They still work. Uh, I'm going to talk still to my, chugging along. I'm going to talk to my representative about that getting repealed immediately. Well, on several occasions, the Congress and the federal government have attempted to repeal the law of supply and demand. Yeah, they're working on it every once in a while right now. I mean, this is a great blurb in there. We're talking oil, gas. We're, um, several weeks ago, we mentioned this. And then again, last week, that it'd be a great time for the U.S. government to remove ethanol from the gasoline. That it does lower the price per gallon, but it lowers the fuel efficiency more. So your gas prices are actually higher with the ethanol in it. It just looks lower at the pump. You just burn it faster. So we said this is a great time to get that phased out. And the Biden administration has announced that they are looking into adding more ethanol into it to lower the price at the pump, which is not actually actually lowering the price. It raises the price to burn it because you burn it faster. Actually, he said he was going to remove the limits on how much ethanol could be put in there, I think, which depends on what they want to do with the corn. I think the farmers, one of the things about the ethanol that goes into our fuel, it is corn that cannot be used, that that they use to make ethanol. It's corn that cannot be used either as animal feed or as human food. Well, it's white corn, and you can use it for tortillas as well. Well, majority of it is a certain amount of corn each year gets infected with a with a uh, a fungus. Yes, pretty good sized chunk, maybe twenty percent of the. That's of the perfect harvest for years. ethanol. Yeah. Yes, and there's nothing else you can do with it but for ethanol because it tends to make animals sick and die, and it makes tends to make humans sick and die. So. Yeah, you probably yeah, don't yeah. want to eat it if it makes you sick and die. I mean, yeah, it might be cheaper though. I mean, think how much yeah. money you would save before your funeral. So. Anyway, (laughs) what we're saying here is that uh, raising the amount of ethanol in the gasoline lowers the price per gallon, but also more lowers the fuel efficiency. So it long-term raises the price. The other piece of it is that ethanol doesn't burn as well in in our automobiles. It causes damage in our automobiles. And this is one of the reasons for the limit and why it's been so slow to go from 15% to 20% in California is because the it, it destroys engines over time, over time. So in an effort to make the gasoline per gallon less expensive, we may be destroying automobiles. Mm-hmm. So that it's just a little silliness, but we're talking about the government. So if it's only a little well, silly, then th- there's something wrong. 
there's another law besides supply and demand. Oh, what's that? The political power of agricultural states. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is very true. Even in, and, even though the boosting price of corn right now because of the, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, it's still people are terrified of losing the 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 benefit of having something to do with their bad corn, the corn that they can't use for other mm-hmm. things. And it's our our government is is a little odd. It's it's a weird democracy. And when I say it's a weird democracy, Wyoming has one. House of Representatives member because yes. it is the, the whole state of Wyoming when it comes to population is smaller than Bell and Coriel County, which are two central Texas. Well, I was just right. Bell County in Texas has not Bell, Bell, I'm Bell and Williamson. I'm sorry, Bell and Bell Williamson. Williamson County, right? So but, it, it's so, not very big, is what you're saying. So it has one representative in the House of Representatives, but it has two senators. And it's an agricultural state. The, the low population states across the middle of the United States are generally called agricultural states and they have two senators apiece which means the voters in those states have far more clout in the united states government than anybody else and the japanese by the way have the same problem their farmers have tremendous power in the government yeah. uh, so the, and the population of wyoming as of the census was five five hundred sixty seven or 576,000 people. That's mm-hmm. 2020. Austin, Texas was 2 million. And yeah. there are two senators representing Wyoming, which is the way it's intended to be. It's a representative democracy. It's, it's just interesting. Yeah, it's a federation. We are it's a it's federation. Still in many ways a federation of independent nations. That's, you know, the rest of the world refers to, for example, Germany as a state. Yeah. And the United States is referred to as a state. We have a state department. Each state within the United States has many of the rights and authorities of and a full nation state. Yeah, of, of a full nation state someplace else. So we're we have an unusual government. So that is one of the laws of politics. It's like the law of supply and demand has not been repealed, and the law of power of agricultural states has not been repealed either. So if you Agreed. want a lot of clout in the government, move to Wyoming. Rhode Island is pretty close, but it's got more people than Wyoming. Anyway, there's I a said I wanted to talk about the labor market real quick. Um, it's funny. It's what I was going to talk about too, but go ahead. Uh, back in 2010, uh, which I realize that's a long time ago for a lot of people, but it's a good place to start. We had a labor force of around 153 million people in the United States. That's a big chunk of people. Just not not saying that in any way that that can make sense. That's the number three size labor force in the world following India and China. Okay. Come forward 10 years to 2020. You went from 153 million people. 2020, we're right at 164, 165 million people working in the United States. So it's 153 to 164, about 11 million people joined the labor force during that decade a little over a million people a year. And it's a pretty smooth rise. There's, there's little blips in there, but it's, it's a pretty good average, about a million point one coming into the labor force every year. And then the recession hit and took us down a lot. Uh, we went down to at the very bottom, and this is month by month, so it's a little higher than, than the very, very bottom. We hit about 150 million from 164. We lost about 14 million jobs 
when the pandemic hit. That's big. That's that's I don't know a bigger word than big. This is this is not tiny. It's a big deal. We have just now this last month reached back up to that level that we were prior to the pandemic of about 164 and a half million people working in the labor force. But that's two years that we didn't see that normal million point one new people coming in. We just skipped them. We're now back to where we were two years ago with no no growth above that number. What What is that? Where did they go? We're not able to hire more people. If there was more than a million people being added to the workforce every year for the last 10 years, where'd they go? And the answer is they left, not physically. A lot of people retired and they mean to stay that way. They're staying out of the labor force because they were planning on retiring right around now anyway. A lot of baby boomers stopped working forever. And that means that that big bulge that we had in the baby boomer uh, entering the workforce in the 1970s and 80s, we just had the opposite of that concentrated over a two-year period. We're probably going to be going back to adding people to the labor force throughout the year again, but this is the speed at which it's added is a big question. We are absolutely at capacity for for hiring at this point there are just there's just very hard to fill up empty spots across the country because there's not enough people we mentioned this last week but it's still an important thing to recognize the odds the chances of getting laid off by the average worker in the United States today are the lowest they've ever been in history. And yeah. since we've been measuring it in any form or fashion, even when we reconstruct history from the 19th century, uh, the numbers are as low are lower than they were since 1968. But the economy is so much bigger today that the percentages are just a fraction of what they were in 1968. Everywhere you go, you see now hiring everywhere. And there's, there's a couple of big factors there. Uh, one Jake mentioned is uh, we have, a couple of million people, we're, we're I think, 1.74, I think it is, million people short. No, I'm sorry. We're 740,000 people less than we had working in in, uh, in 2019. No, but no considering, we're, we're back up to par with that. We have the well, same just, number of people in the workforce now. I just read that today. Okay. So so it's from the, uh, from the Census Bureau. They just came out with a new number. Um, so we're in the same vicinity as where we were. In, but the problem is the economy has grown a lot since 2019. So we have to get the Labor Department and the Census Bureau to have a fisticuffs over how many people are in right. the workforce. Work yeah. I'd watch that. The point is we should have, if, if, we'd, if we'd continued to grow the labor force at the normal rate, we would have several million more workers today than we had in 2019. Right. But we don't. And there's a couple of big reasons for that. One Jake mentioned is, is the 401k. Uh, a lot of people have enough money that they don't want to go back to work. They're comfortable living where they, at, at their current standard of living, their 401k is big enough and they've converted it to an IRA or whatever. And it's supporting them and they're happy with that. Um, there's a lot of people who were working before who aren't going to go back to work, frankly, because of the pandemic. They either experienced something during the pandemic work-related or they are still concerned about disease and that scarring is going to stay with us. The third reason is a big one that we can do something about. And I, 
I've been hammering on this and probably I'm tilting at windmills here. Uh, it's probably foolish for me to keep beating on this, but I'm going to say something about it's it. It's not a windmill. It's a giant. Oh. Yeah. But the problem is that our immigration rate has fallen dramatically in the last five years. Um, and we, the United States has grown and continued to grow for the last 250 years, largely because we allow a certain level of immigration in terms of percentage of the population. And the immigration into the United States is where we get people feeding into the bottom of the labor market, and sometimes into the middle of the labor market. And when we decide we don't want that anymore, if we decide we have totally, we haven't made that final decision, but if we decide we don't want that anymore, we want to be like Japan and China, and we don't want people coming into our country, that indicates the beginning of decline Right. in any nation. Um, people want to come into the United States. There's people all over the world who want to come live in the United States because of the opportunity we have. But when we say, no, we don't want people in the United States, we don't want people coming into the United States. We don't care how well educated you are. We don't care how much you have, uh, want to work. We don't care how hard you want to work. Uh, we just don't want you in the United States. Then we begin, that is the beginning of the end for any major industrialized nation. Uh, there's that's just a uh, whether you like it or not it's a functional reality of the world the it's united states has grown largely largely through immigration the united states economy has continued to grow over the last two and a half centuries if we decide to shut that down and emulate japan and china god help us because we're going to need all the help we can get the french yeah. are an example where they largely decided to shut down immigration and when they decided to shut down immigration their economy started to decline and and let's be really clear here that isn't saying that we should just open up the borders and let everybody come in that wants to come in that's absolutely not what any intention that any thinking person would do there need to be restrictions we have a level of privilege here that is very unavailable most of the rest of the world so coming here should be something that's earned, but we should also look at the demand here. If every place is hiring and we're refusing immigration, there's something wrong there. We should have a way of vetting immigrants in advance and tracking them while they're here and giving them uh, the privilege that we have, but that they have to earn. Uh, that's, I, this goes back to Reagan. Ronald Reagan was big on this view and thought that this was a great idea. And since then, there's really no political party, Democrat or Republican, that is saying, hey, let's do this based on what's right for the economy. It's either absolutely no, no immigration, or anybody that wants to be here should be able to be here. Neither of those are viable. They're just, it's not long-term not good for the health of the country to allow everybody in or to allow nobody in. And that means that somebody's going to have to come together in DC and make some decisions that are going to cause the people that vote to them for them to hate them. <laughs> Whether it's the Democrats saying, yeah, we should put some restrictions on who's allowed to be here or the Republicans saying, yeah, we should allow some people to be here at all. And by the way, that's an underlying cause of inflation. When you see prices rising, the fact that, if you if if there is a it's the law of supply and demand the the supply of available people to work is low the demand is high which means prices go up and as you pay more to people for people to work then you have to raise the price of whatever you're selling to the public it's that simple um and and if you're willing to pay higher prices much higher prices 
then not allowing immigration makes sense. Otherwise, it becomes prohibitively expensive to live in a country that doesn't allow immigration. And I realize as well as you do that this is a, a statement that is getting zero traction in anywhere that we say it, that the political powers are still driven by the all or nothing approach. If you're on the all side or they on the nothing side, anything that we say about moderation is like, oh, you're just on the other side. No, there is a middle ground that is the reality of the world. If you shut the borders, we don't grow. If you open the borders completely, we get chaos. Uh, yeah. So we got to find somewhere in there. And uh, I don't expect it to actually get done, not anytime soon, but it's happened in the past. We had very, we've had very, very restrictive rules in the past that got loosened. Anyway, that's our wrap-up. Expect good things. Our economy is still growing. There's bumps ahead. Inflation's going to be around for a while. Anything else you want to add to that? Long-term, the world situation is in our favor right now, tremendously. We are going to benefit from the fact, ultimately, that Russia invaded Ukraine. We're going to benefit from the fact that China is being stupid. Yes. Uh, and it's sad that we have to benefit from other people's hardship, but it's a good place to be, I guess. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we do give personalized fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth, corporations, foundations, trusts, that sort of thing. Uh, we have a phone number locally with voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you will be able to read our newsletter, sign up for it, listen to podcasts or the radio program. Go to anywhere podcasts are provided and you could find us under The Personal Wealth Coach. Um, or email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.